Wow. Oh, hey there. My name's Ross, and I'm a bit of a nerd for all things nature. So a while ago, I started a passion project called well, nerdy about nature. It began as social media videos sharing cool fun facts and tidbits of wisdom about the natural world and has since evolved in this podcast that you're tuning into here. This project serves as means to inspire, educate, and engage folks with the outdoor world so that we can all become better stewards of it and so that we can all work together to create a more inclusive, diverse, equitable, and just future for each and every one of us in this world that we all share. Because nature, it's pretty dang neat, you know? I think we should keep it that way. So come on, let's go get nerdy about nature. Come and take a nature walk with me We're gonna check out some really cool trees We're gonna hang around and talk about All those things in nature that we can't live without Let's go get nerdy, yeah, let's get nerdy about nature Nerdy, yeah, let's get nerdy about nature, baby Nerdy, yeah, let's get nerdy about nature Come on, let's get nerdy about nature What's up, nerds? Welcome to the podcast. Super stoked to have you all here. So in case you haven't heard by now, uh, there's this tiny little thing called climate change that can have some pretty serious impacts on the way that ecological systems around our world function and perform, and thus impact the way that life on this planet lives. As fellow living things on this planet, you know, that includes humans like you and I, and it's a pretty big deal since we're the ones who have been primarily responsible for it, causing it through our reliance on those danged fossil fuels over the past few centuries. Now, naturally, the easiest way to stop this climate change is to then stop using those fossil fuels. But that's pretty tricky as they're involved in just about everything we do on a daily basis. Fortunately, though, it is totally possible and we have a roadmap for doing just that, which is the subject of today's episode where we talk about decarbonizing the energy grid. So that's taking all of our electricity that we're currently using and finding ways to get the same amount and even more from renewable sources instead of from fossil fuels. So what that involves, what it looks like, and how we get there as a society. So today I'm sitting down with Stephen Thomas, who is the clean energy manager at the David Suzuki Foundation, and we're breaking it all down in terms of what it's going to take for a country like Canada, which currently has plans to fully decarbonize the grid by the year 2035, to actually meet those goals. While we're talking specifically about Canada in most of these examples here, many of these topics, methods, hurdles, and solutions are very much applicable to communities and nations all over the world, especially those here on Turtle Island like the United States, as we share lots of similarities in land use, uh, long distances between cities across the continent, and how to ethically manage this change across existing nations in a decolonial way. So lots to cover in this one from the types of energy we need to be focusing on to the benefits of this energy, how much cheaper and much more reliable it's going to be to market opportunities and incentive programs in place to help support everyone through this transition so that no one gets left behind. Now let's get into it. Yes, this is your first time doing a podcast. My first time doing a podcast, podcast in, person. in person, it's all been in the technical realm until now, so I'm happy to join you outside. <laughs> Do you have any experience like with music recording, hearing your voice in your head like this? Um, only on radio shows. Like I do like call-in shows every once in a while where folks will call in and okay. yell at me about renewable energy. Oh, okay, uh, gotcha. And, uh, and it's always a trip. It's always like takes 30 seconds to be like, wow, this is what I sound like to other human beings. Yeah, it's always um, funny. Um, what, a thing that I've recently been doing with, with new guests on the show to have them uh, break it in is to just lay down your best beatbox right away. I... Or music, or like I guess you could hum something. You could. I'm gonna go for a whistle if you'll allow oh, it. Oh yeah, whistle would um, be great. I'm gonna try. 
Lovely. I'm going to see how that lands. Yeah, Yeah, that was great. (laughs) We'll uh, we'll listen back. Um, Thanks for joining me today. Really appreciate you coming out um, this beautiful sunny day here in Van. Uh, Would you like to start by introducing yourself, who you are, what you do? Sure. Um, Thanks so much for for having me out. Uh, My name is Stephen Thomas. I use he and him. Uh, For work, I'm the clean energy manager with the David Suzuki Foundation uh, here in Vancouver on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, the Tsleil-Waututh, and the Squamish. Uh, as a human being, I'm a white settler uh, who grew up in, in Nova Scotia in the unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq and Mi'kma'ki in a place called Lawrencetown in Dabouisinkig. Um, so much of my like work context, organizing context, um, and political context is is still really rooted out east, um, but I'm really grateful to, to be out here on the west coast too doing this work. How do you mean rooted out east? Um, I grew up there. I grew up there like politically and in this work. My first jobs in, in renewable energy or in activism were all out there in that context. And um, you, I mean, you heard me stumble just on the territorial acknowledgement off the top here. And that's, I feel very, very new to this territory in a way that I feel um, uh, isn't true of, of just like how rooted I feel in, in the territory out in Mi'kma'ki. Uh, had the opportunity to have like treaty education and just like take the time on the land to um to get to know uh get to know it a little bit better so that's that's what i mean and you've you've only been uh here in vancouver for a couple years yeah i moved here in in the pandemic i moved here for love uh like march 7th 2020 so i've really really only known uh, vancouver as a place that is in or emerging from the pandemic so it's been a slow getting to know you, but it's been great. <laughs> right. And it's a pretty um, radically different biogeoclimatic zone, like culturally everything um, compared to anything that I've heard out, out east. I haven't actually been out to Nova Scotia, but um, I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful part of the world and so unique in its own. Like, have you had a, a chance to explore and get around much? Yeah. I mean, I'd be nervous talking about species with someone like you, but um, so, so different. Like just the the trees, the ecosystem, like being so close to, to mountains uh, and being anywhere near old growth, um, is really, really amazing. You can really feel it. Um, Nova Scotia has got a lot going for it, but, uh, it's been, been cut over and over and over again. So, uh, love that forest. Like that's where I grew up. Um, that's where I learned to have any sort of relationship with, uh, with a landscape and with a forest, but, uh, yeah. it's different here. Yeah. yeah, it is. Uh, like I was saying earlier, I have a buddy who just moved out to Nova Scotia to Dartmouth and he sent me a video, uh, on a surf truck the other day just like a full 360 panorama and I was just like my god it is so flat out there like nothing breaks the tree line it was just like (laughs) the trees are smaller yeah they have character man they're cool like the Acadian forest love it uh so it's not all about big trees but um it's very different and so and what's kind of work do you do with David Suzuki Foundation like what's your title entail yeah. Uh, so my title again is the clean energy manager. I'm one of the folks who leads our work on uh, renewable electricity, clean electricity, clean energy more broadly, that sort of section of our climate solutions work. Um, so I'm an engineer by training uh, and got into this work a little bit that way um, by working on community-owned uh, renewable energy projects. Uh, like civil engineering kind of background? I'm actually a mechanical engineer. Okay. So like my first interaction with like the renewable energy work world was working on gearboxes of wind turbines and uh, actually building uh, kind of backyard wind turbines and solar panels with friends of mine. Um, 
uh, and then was really lucky to be able to do that work in a way that was like community led and community owned with a program that existed out in Nova Scotia um, when I got out of school. Um, but I've been doing this work that's uh, much more in like the tradition of climate justice. I am uh, 30, going on 33 years old uh, now, so I've officially aged out of the youth climate justice movement for sure. <laughs> Um, is there a now, cap on that? I thought it was more of a mentality, but <laughs> I don't know what the cap is. But I feel like, as a thirty-three-year-old, I have, uh, I have, a, like, uh, there's a gap in the affinity that I have with like a Gen Z folks who are eighteen, who are doing truly incredible, incredible work. Um, uh, but yeah, that's the tradition that I come from. Is is that sort of like youth climate justice world? Um, so that really paints my uh, my activism and my approach. Um, and the work that I do now in this sort of uh, policy advocacy uh, world. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and so what was the transition like going from, I mean, building wind turbines to activism stuff out east? What what were you doing out there? Were you doing policy stuff out east as well? Yeah, I used to work for a place called the Ecology Action Center. Uh, shout out to the EAC. They're doing amazing work. Um, and that was that was an amazing uh, time in my life, too. We got to work on phasing out coal or, or the plans to phase out coal in Nova Scotia, um, working on pipeline fights and and a lot of uh, work on, on energy affordability and energy poverty for communities out there too. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so one of the big things that you're working on right now is kind of the plans to decarbon decarbonize Canada. Yeah, that's, that's I think, the, the meat of this conversation today is, uh, is the work that the David Suzuki Foundation and, and our allies are doing on pushing Canada to get to 100% zero emissions electricity by the year 2035. Um, so that like 2035 goal, I'll probably bring up a lot in this conversation. It's one that is um, rooted in, in the science of climate change, uh, the International Energy Agency, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So many governments are, around the world have identified like this goal as a really specific thing that Canada and a country like Canada has to do um, to to do its fair share when it comes to um, reducing emissions and taking the climate crisis seriously. There's so much else that we need to do in Canada, lots of other problems that I'm very happy to talk about, but that's what our work is focused on right now is this sort of solution side of of that work. And for me, it's so, um, so life-giving because uh, this, if done well, like this transition to 100% renewables has the opportunity to really benefit people's lives um, in Canada and of course beyond. Uh, so very happy to dig into those details too. Right. And I think that's like a really important distinction to make. Like <clears throat> we're going to be talking about Canada specifically and a lot of things happening within Canada regarding policy and the way that trends are moving and, and industry is kind of evolving. But this is a conversation that's applicable to the United States, like anywhere else in the world that's going through these same kind of growing pains. Yeah. And growing pains is a good way to put it. Like uh, a lot of folks are still trying to figure out how to how to rearrange uh, this this energy and economy uh, world when it comes to uh, truly and decidedly leaving fossil fuels behind and moving toward like this kind of renewable energy economy. So the United States, the European Union, the United Kingdom, all have this similar 2035 target. They're all kind of in different mm -hmm. different paths to get there. Yeah, and it's such an interesting um, issue for society, for humanity to be dealing with because it's like we've made obviously like big... Um, big economic and industrial transitions in the past but that was always kind of like out of convenience where we find a better fuel we find a better way of doing things and it's been like that evolution and this is like this really big ambiguous 
existential kind of thing that exists in the ether of being. And so it's like, how do we, how do we like ignite really rapid, quick change across all levels to basically like prevent like an existential threat from occurring when like it's not driven by um, technological innovation or convenience or anything of the sort? Yeah. And I think when we talk about other energy transitions or other economic transitions that happened in the past, we're just in a very different world than the last time a big one of these uh, foundational, transformative, uh, uh, really existential in the case of climate change. Um, transformations happened and people talk about like whale oil. We, we literally used to harvest whales and the oil from whales to light lamps and heater homes. Um, that was clearly a terrible idea. Um, and, and then we moved on to fossil fuels and other things. But I think the difference about that time and this time uh, is everything, but particularly like the whale oil lobby wasn't very strong. <laughs> and here in this moment, the by far the biggest reason why we can't deal with climate change, why we can't take decided action um, toward lowering our emissions and moving away from fossil fuels is because of the fossil fuel industry itself, because of the strength of the fossil fuel lobby, who here in Canada and really around the world uh, just spend millions and millions and millions of dollars um, fighting every single policy um, that we try to move away from fossil fuels. It's existential for them too. They're very desperate. They're in like this death spiral of an industry, um, which is inevitable. But where we're sitting right now, they're still like one of, if not the most profitable um, uh, sectors on the planet and in history. Um, we're talking right now in, in the year 2023, where they're coming off of a year in 2022 with like the record profits of any sector in the history of the world, like more than $200 billion in, in uh, just this, this neck of the woods. Just in profits. Just in profits, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this is when... That's um, like beyond, it's like taking into account the six, seven figure salaries you're paying your CEOs. You're making that much money on, in profit. Yes, you're making this much money in profit on the backs of people like here in Canada and around the world who literally can't afford to heat their homes, who are making decisions about whether or not they, they keep the lights on or they feed their kids or they pay for their medication. Um, so this will come out in the rest of our conversation. Um, but if it isn't clear off the top, like I'm not a fan of, <laughs> of the fossil fuel industry and their lobby. Um, and I think they're by far and away like the biggest barrier, especially here in Canada, for why we're not moving decidedly toward these sort of solutions that I really want to dig into. I think off the top two, if I can, like, um, although I'm very cranky uh, and uh, and uh, like not a fan of the fossil fuel industry, like uh, for, for just to be really clear, like this doesn't translate to workers, um, like uh, fossil fuel workers, folks who are you know working class folks who are just making decisions about um, their own livelihoods and putting food on the table for themselves and their kids like are not our enemy in this fight at all um, and along with frontline communities and and really everyone in this like they uh, they need to be part of this conversation and, and be well accounted for uh, when we leave no one behind in a transition like this um, I've got yeah uncles brothers uh, brother-in-law. Um, who work in this industry, who are human beings who I care about too. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is all about like making a just transition for everybody involved. And I think like that, I mean, that's <clears throat> something like a common theme with any big kind of 
extraction based industry, whether it's like logging or fishing or anything like there are the people who are like working these jobs and on the ground who often take like a brunt of the criticism, I feel like, especially like on maybe a more personal level when like really like what needs to change isn't necessarily like like those people. They're just like working jobs, getting by, supporting their family, living their lives. It's these kind of like systemic things that have been established over hundreds of years in some cases that just kind of continues to control the way in which things are done that we need to address. And I've actually got some com or some questions about the, um, I guess, role of government and big industry towards the end of it. I figure we could say that for the end because it's kind of we're kind of jumping into it right off the bat now. Yeah, but I'm happy to go where where you are with this. But let's let's, let's circle back to all of the lobbying and power of like, the industry, but. Let's talk about decarbonizing in Canada, the grid. What does that look like? Um, how do we how do we get to like net zero energy by twenty thirty five? Yeah, that's that's the best place to start. Is like why is this thing worth doing? Um, and we talked off the top about like the existential crisis of climate change. Uh, this being like a foundational thing that we need to do to lower emissions and do what Canada has to do to take it seriously. Of course, that's a good thing. Um, but when we talk about this transition away from from fossil fuels toward uh, renewable energy, um, it has so many other benefits too that are really worth fighting for, really worth doing. Um, so when I, when I think about this uh, off the top, I think about affordability. Uh, we sometimes maybe have in the back of our minds a time when wind and solar used to be expensive. There are still a lot of politicians in Canada who love to blame uh, wind and solar for the reason why energy prices might be high. And that just is no longer true and hasn't been true for many years. Uh, wind and solar electricity are the cheapest form of electricity in history. They're the cheapest form of electricity that we can choose to put on the grid now, but they're the cheapest form that we've ever had. Um, so it makes sense to use a lot of those renewable energy technologies when we're talking about how to transform uh, the grid. And even up here in Canada, because I don't think people necessarily think of solar when they think of Canada because... You know, we have really cold, long winters generally across like a majority of the country. But even in those conditions, it still is like a viable option. Um, it totally is. Um, lots of sun, more than enough uh, sun hits Canada um, to, uh, to to have a really meaningful um, uh, role to play here in our energy system. And the same is true for wind too. Uh, we have some of the best wind and solar resources in the world here in Canada um, and a lot of opportunity to, to build those things well. Um, so it's not only the fact that uh, these technologies are cheap, um, but uh, when we integrate them well into our energy system, the overall cost of energy goes down for everybody. Um, so we're talking about like what we're doing on the grid side by moving away from fossil fuel electricity plants and generation toward renewable electricity. Um, but on what's called the demand side, how human beings actually use energy, there's a lot of work to do there too, to get away from fossil fuels and tap into that clean energy, that clean electricity. So that's uh, how we get around in our cars, moving from gasoline and diesel, uh, which is extremely volatile in its price um, and more expensive than ever, um, moving to, to electricity is just so much cheaper, 10 times, 12 times cheaper in, uh, in many cases here in Canada. Um, but like it's, we're talking about electric public transport, uh, active transportation, all these things, but there's a like demand side part of this discussion about how we move away uh, there too. And that's true in our buildings. Um, when we talk too about like the justice elements of this work, it's making sure that folks who are struggling and there are more people than ever who are struggling to 
pay their energy bills um, uh, are able to to actually see the benefits of moving away from a leaky house with a really expensive natural gas or oil burner um, toward a much more energy efficient, much more safe, much more healthy home that's powered by an electric heat pump, that's powered by renewable electricity. Um, and like you said, the consistency of affordability there too is huge because it's no longer dependent on global supply chains and price of a, a gas or energy resource going up or down based on all these external things happening. Completely, completely. Um, I def- I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what the cost of electricity in every single province will be 10, 15, 20 years from now. But um, when we... Uh, when we pay for renewable electricity, it's typically on a contract that's 20 or 25 years. So you know exactly what the price is going to be tomorrow and 25 years from now. We do not have that certainty when it comes to uh, to fossil fuels. And, and it's so, so volatile. It can go it's month to down. month. I mean, totally. and, and even seeing what happened in Europe this past winter with everything happening between Russia and Ukraine and the way that that impacted fuel for people like having to heat their homes in the wintertime was really interesting like yeah yeah there's much big issues that we've never had to think about or even consider solving before yeah yeah the much less opportunity for 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 bad actors to to use energy and energy supply as a weapon um uh, as we're seeing in europe but it's affecting everybody yeah would you say that in that case just like side note like would making this transition kind of decentralize sources of like global power in a way i don't know (laughs) i mean that's a big that's a big one and i think just thinking like about russia even like and then the power it holds in like the market in europe if if people are no longer dependent on those issues theoretically it would disrupt that systemic power yeah completely completely um but i think this digs into a part of the conversation for me too where um it really matters how um there are so many different ways that this can roll out and although you know i love renewable energy with my whole heart um there are versions of this future where we just replace um, fossil fuel infrastructure on our landscape and replace it with a bunch of wind turbines and solar panels but keep the hegemony, keep the power structures, keep the the um, the inequalities and inequities um, in our world too, uh, and that's that's a whole other fight. Is that like while we are making uh, this transition away from fossil fuels to ensure that it's it's a just transition, not only for workers but um, really uh, decentralizing, democratizing energy, um, while uh, we decarbonize it and decolonize it as well. Mm-hmm. So as it stands right now, what are our kind of main sources of energy that we're using um, here in Canada? And like, what do you consider the green energies of, of the future? So when we talk about like energy, uh, th- there's like the bigger category of energy. And then a lot of the work that I do is is really just a part of that when we talk about electricity. So energy in Canada far and away is mostly fossil fuels. We mostly use fossil fuels to get around in our cars. We mostly use fossil fuels to heat our homes and and buildings. Um, We mostly, in in many places in Canada, use fossil fuels to power the grid too. Um, So the, the, the opportunity that we have is to move away from fossil fuels in all those different categories and put so many more of our energy needs onto the electricity system and use that electricity system uh, much, much more efficiently than the energy system we have today um, and make sure that the energy that we're putting on that electricity system is itself clean. 
Um, so we mentioned already a report that we, we wrote uh, about a year ago called Shifting Power. Happy birthday to that report. Um, we've been talking about it a lot here in the last year because uh, it does a job of, of charting that pathway for how Canada can completely transform its electricity system um, away from using fossil fuels uh, toward using clean electricity. But also in all this talk of, I've been uh, talking about here with all the other new things we're putting on the electricity system, the electricity grid itself needs to about double in size, double in capacity um, in order to, to accommodate that. So there's a lot, a lot of work to do um, in cleaning up the grid and in upgrading the grid too. Right. And, and connecting the grid, right? Like connecting different parts of the pro of different provinces. Cause right now everything, as far as I know, and which is little is that like, it's, it's somewhat isolated. So, um, you know, if you don't, if you're relying on wind and solar in one part of the country that maybe is having just like, for whatever reason, there's a lack of wind and a lack of solar, you need to be able to reliably get energy from a different part of the country that is experiencing, you know, surplus in those demands to be able to send there. Yeah, exactly. So uh, as we move to a system that uses a lot more wind and solar, things like energy storage, and of course, energy efficiency first, um, all of that becomes more possible, more affordable, and more reliable if we also uh, are more connected to, to our neighbors. Uh, so in the report, we talk a lot about these new electricity lines that, that need to be built between provinces, between BC and Alberta, um, around Atlantic Canada, but really across every provincial boundary, um, sharing electricity uh, between provinces brings a lot of benefits for for making the electricity system cheaper and more reliable. Mm -hmm. Totally. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was interesting in reading the report, um, but enlisting like the types of energy sources that, that the, the future of Canada um, has, um, you didn't include biomass. And I found that to be like great and really interesting because I feel like biomass is one of those sources, especially for powering the grid that often gets this, like, it's like known as like the new green energy. Um, would you like to explain why that's not considered in the kind of future plans? Yeah, there are a few technologies we left out and happy to dig into the others too. But for us, biomass was an easy one to leave out um, because it makes very little sense on the electricity grid when we're moving to to one that um, we want to be affordable because biomass is just so much more expensive than wind and solar and energy storage and the other options we talked about. Um, but I think like you, like I'm just deeply sp skeptical that we can ever do biomass on a large scale um, responsibly. Um, uh, in, in Nova Scotia, um, you know, we cut whole trees and just chuck them into a boiler and a burner and and call it call it clean electricity. Um, and, and it's just so hard for me to, to imagine like clear cuts as part of like justifying clear cuts and burning trees as, um, part of what we, um, are moving toward for this, like, uh, vision we try to have about like a better future, a better, uh, better climate. So it's, it's more expensive. Um, it's and dirtier, it's, it's dirtier. It has like so many of the, when you burn things, they have carbon emissions, which we're really focused on because climate change is such a big deal. Um, but when you burn things, all kinds of other stuff comes out that smokestack too. Um, so like these kinds of impacts feel normal to us because we're so used to them. Um, but just from, uh, from smokestacks, from tailpipes in cars, from the burning of mostly fossil fuels, 
more than 42 Canadians die every single day from premature uh, like health impacts that are caused by the burning of those fossil fuels, from those air pollutions, from PM 2.5, from uh, nitrous oxides, and, and all the all the air pollutants that come out along that too. So I'm just saying that because that's going to be true. Uh, more or less, like no matter what else we do to a fossil fuel or a, or a, a thermal plant that burns something. Um, so that's, we're, we're talking about biomass here, but um, this is true too when um, uh, people love to have this idea for biomass plus carbon capture and storage or fossil fuels plus carbon capture and storage where they do... Uh, a job. I'm not convinced it'll be a good job, but some kind of job of like grabbing those carbon emissions specifically out of the smokestack when they burn the fossil fuels. Um, but that's all it does. Like it's not going to solve all these health impacts that, that we're, we're dealing with here too. Or dependency and supply chain issues. Yeah. I mean, all the reasons why to, to leave the fossil fuel economy are still, uh, are still present if we just slap carbon capture on it and call it a day. So I know you brought up biomass and that's, that's relevant for that conversation too, but we see it all the time with, um, with natural gas and with coal too. Uh, like folks who own fossil fuel electricity plants don't want to shut them down. They just want to slap on this carbon capture uh, technology. Um, and we're deeply, deeply skeptical about that. Um, if it ever works, um, but if it ever works, it'll be much, much, much more expensive and not solve any of these health impact problems that we have um, where we have a cheaper, like ready to go option with renewables and storage. Yeah. Yeah. I always just find that one a really funny one because especially amongst industry, it's always promoted as like this best option, um, which I mean, like if you understand the origins of fossil fuels in general, you realize that like it, it's like biomass is basically, I see it as like pre-fossil fuels. It's like fossil fuels originated, like, you know, we have oil, which is mostly algae from oceans. It's condensed and formed over hundreds of thousands and millions of years to become oil. Coal is basically wood mass from like the Carboniferous period that's been condensed into this. And we're burning that. So like being like, oh no, biomass is is better because we're no longer waiting those millions of years for it to become this condensed form of coal. We're just burning it right now. When like, especially during the Carboniferous period, if we want to go into like geological time, like the amount of carbon that was sucked out of the atmosphere at that time by all those plants that are now the coal that we're burning literally changed the atmosphere because it drew so much carbon out of the atmosphere. And that like is what has helped build us a hospitable planet right now. So like if we're trying to kind of reduce emissions generally, like we can't just be like planting trees to grow trees to burn them again, because that's just continuing that cycle. We need to actually like plant trees, grow trees, and like allow those forests to mature and actually store carbon in quantity is similar or at least like you know replicating what was done in the carboniferous period i just find that fascinating i've always wanted to talk about it and had to just say it makes sense to me um in in another of like the solutions because you guys map mostly wind and solar as being like the kind of areas to really grow on um hydro also plays a really big part in that um, but not necessarily building new dams do you want to talk about that yeah, that is similarly on the basis of like cost and impact. Um, so for, for the for the study that we did, basically all of the new things we're putting on the grid are wind, solar, energy efficiency, energy storage. Um, and we take off a lot of the, the, the fossil fuels. Um, but to your point, we leave on the vast majority of the, the, the hydro dams in Canada. Um, I think 
we have a real uh it's very lucky that in canada we um we have like the scope and scale of of, of hydro that has already been built with all of the terrible and awful impacts that it had when we built these dams in the the 60s 70s and a couple of them recently um but they're there they're built um it makes sense to me to to continue to to use those at least for this middle period of the energy transition and at least while they're still operating efficiently cause... totally um because they're up they're built they're cheap and they work so well with wind and solar and energy storage too they can be turned on and off and ramped up and down um, in a way that really complements wind and solar really well, where how much wind or solar from a specific energy plant is going up and down through the day, it works really well to use that with hydroelectricity. So that's part of the reason why the transmission lines, the new electricity lines between provinces make a lot of sense too. Because um, between BC and Alberta, for instance, uh, as there's a lot of very cheap much cheaper than hydro, uh, wind and solar uh, that could be built in Alberta. BC could benefit from that by buying it when it's when it's operating, when it's windy, when it's sunny, and keeping that water behind the dams, uh, and then using that hydroelectricity when it's not windy or not sunny, and selling that hydroelectricity to Alberta back and forth. Um, stories like that kind of play out um, across Canada. There's uh, between Manitoba and its neighbors, between Quebec and its neighbors, and that sort of thing. Um, but when we talk about new dams, when we talk about the prospect of moving toward zero carbon electricity and whether or not it's a good idea to build lots of wind and solar, or whether or not it's a good idea to build more new mega hydro dams, we are not fans of, of the prospect of, of new hydroelectricity projects at that scale. That's because they're certainly much more expensive than wind and solar, no matter no matter what study you look at. Um, they're bulkier too. Like they just take in many cases, like a decade or more to build, uh, where it takes two to three years to build a wind and solar project. Um, and the impacts, like I don't even need to, to get into the, the, like the, the enormity of the indigenous rights, uh, impacts of the impacts to landscapes and, and ecosystems. Um, it'd be better to avoid that if we can. And I really believe we can't. Um, we, I just don't think we need it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see, because I know that there is like a lot of talk and, and movement in cases where it's happening, especially in dams that are no longer efficient or even generating, because like we, especially here in BC, we live in uh, <clears throat> an area that sees a lot of water and with a lot of that water, um, especially in combination with a lot of other different land uses that we have going on, there's like often a lot of sedimentation in those dams that stops them from being as efficient as before. And so there's a lot of calls to like remove those dams to restore watersheds and especially for salmon habitat. There's a couple of great case studies of that happening successfully along like the Elwha River down in Washington state. Um, and I know that that's like a, a thing that people are always kind of continuing to push for. Um, do you think there's enough, I guess, buffer within the wind and solar capabilities within Canada to make up for that difference as those dams become less efficient and eventually start contributing less to the grid in the future? Yeah, I do. And I think what I'm really hyper-focused on is how we transform this, you know, electricity system really, really dramatically in the next, like, decade or more, like between now and, and the year 2035. So for me, for this, like, first really, like, rapid pace, let's clean this up, let's build out the grid, period, um, it makes sense for me, of course, to, to, to leave hydro on. And if, as climate patterns change, as water patterns change, uh, there, we're going to see differences in how those dams work too. 
Um, but I think it's a, it's a no regrets pathway to, to build out like new wind and solar, um, into meeting that 2035 target. Um, and then in the decades that come after that, um, seeing what the best, best options are, if, if it makes sense to decommission those dams and in the the decades after that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for a transition, the kind of four main points that you guys are working on is energy storage, efficiency within the grid, um, upgrading the grid, and connecting provinces. Anything you'd like to expand on in there? You've, you've talked a lot about um, upgrading the grid and connecting provinces. Efficiency? How, how do you mean? Like efficiency of the grid? Efficiency of transport? Or is that like appliances efficiency? Like No, yeah, that's what we mean. We don't necessarily mean efficiency of the grid. Um, using electricity is so much more efficient uh, in terms of like the energy uh, that we actually get to use when we compare it to burning fossil fuels. We usually only get a tiny fraction of of the energy stored in those fuels when we burn them, put them through a a thermal plant and then put them on lines and whatever. So just using renewable electricity is in itself like so much more efficient for, for everything across the board. But when I say efficiency, what I actually mean is like on the on the side of this equation where human beings actually use the energy using that much more efficiently so that too has like this huge uh, benefit for human beings in terms of like their health their comfort and their their pocketbooks so when we talk about efficiency we mean like upgrading people's homes to be more insulated more energy efficient so that no matter what your energy source is you need less energy to be comfortable and be healthy and be happy in your home um, that has benefits across the board that aren't just for climate change or aren't just for our energy system. Um, so it's beyond necessarily like the energy uses, but just like, um, making life more efficient in a way. Like, so it's like whether or not your house is still being heated by, uh, you know, gas or if it's on a heat pump, just making it more insulated and, and heat, uh, like retaining more heat better. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's these ideas called deep energy retrofits which um, uh, which which allow our homes to use less energy. Uh, switching to a heat pump will dramatically like reduce your energy need right away. Um, but insulating your home um, uh, helps you not use as much energy, but also it's healthier. Like drafty homes are unhealthy homes. Like drafty homes for folks who can't afford their energy bills in particular, um, there are like real health impacts of that when it comes to mold, when it comes to just being uncomfortable, too cold in the winter, too hot in the summer. Um, we're, we're talking here in BC and when we had the heat dome, uh, two years ago, um, record, record heat impacts here, very uncommon to have, uh, air conditioning available to people, um, especially low income folks, especially renters here in BC. Um, and more than 600 people died when we had that like big heat event and 98% of those people who died, died in their homes because their homes were poorly insulated. Their heat traps, there's no access to air conditioning. Um, they, you know, couldn't afford an air conditioner in the first place. Um, the, this kind of interface is what, what I mean when, uh, if we build our homes differently, we upgrade our homes to be more energy efficient. Heat pumps have a, have the ability to be run as air conditioners and keep us cool in the, in the summer when, um, when these climate impacts, uh, that are around the corner keep coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so tragic. The heat dome. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> like even hearing you talk about all that, like just 
because I think one of one of the the big kind of sticking points for a lot of people in, in wrapping their head around this transition is jobs and loss of jobs. And I think like big picture people think like, oh, if we're using solar and wind and we're no longer drilling oil or mining coal or doing any of this other stuff, like we're not going to have no no jobs. But like even within that, all the retrofitting just to make houses efficiency more efficient, like that speaks volumes of the amount of work that it's going to take, like the amount of jobs it will create just to do that one thing. Can you um, talk a little bit about like the job creation and job sustainability as we like kind of go through this transition? Yeah, jobs is huge here and uh, and an exciting part of this, like a part of the benefits that we see. Um, because when we talk about building more renewable energy, that's building it everywhere in Canada. So those jobs are where people live. When we talk about upgrading people's homes, uh, there are, of course, benefits to those people who get those upgrades on their homes. Um, but also those jobs are inherently in the communities where these people live. Um, so you get to... You get to um, uh, participate in the in the energy transition uh, through your job, like where you live, which I think is so so important. I come from uh, from Nova Scotia, where it's very common um, for for people, for for men and fathers in particular, but for for lots of folks um, to do this like long commute of uh, needing work, finding work in the oil patch in Alberta, um, flying four or five thousand kilometers uh, for your job, stay there for two weeks, and then come home for two weeks and and do that. Um, that's got like all these other stressors um, that uh, that aren't just about uh, the work that you do. Um, so anyway, the <laughs> one of the opportunities is that we can do this this work where we where we live. Um, but the scope and scale of jobs is is pretty amazing when it comes to uh, to clean energy and to to this transition. Uh, folks at Clean Energy Canada uh, recently released a report this week um, at the time of recording this week. Um, where they they kind of did the math on uh, if we take this transition seriously, if we totally phase out fossil fuels and we build up energy efficiency, clean electricity, all the things that we want to move toward, what does that do for jobs? Um, so taking into account all the jobs that are lost in the oil patch and in the oil economy um, and looking at all the jobs that are created in renewable energy and home upgrades, in electric vehicles and chargers and the manufacturing of these things, um, it's good news. It's 700,000 more jobs when we move to that uh, uh, clean energy economy, even accounting for all the jobs lost in, in the, the fossil fuel economy. Um, and we sometimes have this idea of like what a green job is or what a, a climate job is, is like a white man in a hard hat putting up a solar panel. And that's, that's definitely a part of it. Um, but there's so many other ways that this work looks like. And, and we just don't have a way of talking about it in the way that we talk about jobs in the oil patch sometimes. So it's already the case that there are more jobs in Canada in energy efficiency and in the economies that support energy efficiency than in the oil and gas economy in Canada. There are more jobs uh, already for folks who are insulating homes, putting in heat pumps, electricians who are putting in electric vehicle chargers, all that sort of stuff already more jobs there than we have in oil and gas really yep that's yeah wild yeah um, i mean and it's it's a massive undertaking i mean like even um like retrofitting homes to have efficient heat pumps like that's that can be a big undertaking especially in like a lot of the old homes that like make up a good portion of cities like vancouver yeah yeah, I think we're we're digging in pretty deep on this one point, but I think it's so important because it's it's really sometimes it's hard to see yourself in 
what's happening in the energy transition or for like the regular person to be like, I don't know if it's nuclear or hydro or coal, like what does it, what does it matter to me? Um, where it really does matter on this, like uh, where, where people use energy um, uh, when people are upgrading their homes um, and when people actually see uh, the opportunities to work in building all of this wind and solar and energy storage in their communities. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned, you know, that stereotypical idea of like a white guy in a hard hat doing that. Like typically <clears throat> a lot of the oil and gas jobs have been represented by like a very stereotypical, yeah, white people in, in the industry and these kind of blue collar jobs. Um, can you speak a little bit about like not only diversity in like this kind of upcoming um transition but um also like what it means to decolonize this transition that, and, and bring other voices into the mix yeah it's crucial um this is part of what we mean when we say we have the opportunity to like transform the way we do things uh more so than just perform or pardon me uh transform uh, the energy system too um so far and away, when we talk about the impacts of the fossil fuel economy, when we mine fossil fuels, when we transport them on pipelines and trucks and trains, and when we use them and burn them and have the health impacts of using them and burning them, those impacts far and away disproportionately impact black and brown communities, indigenous communities, uh, folks of color, poor folks um, across Canada. And this is true across the states and so many other places too. Um, that environmental racism aspect that uh, injustice is so inherent in the way that we do things for the current energy system. So as we talk about the new energy system, it's crucial that, uh, that those frontline communities um, directly and, and first see the benefits of, of the jobs, of the cost savings, of the health, um, the good health impacts. Um, so, so a big part of that is, is the leadership that's already being shown in indigenous communities um, across uh, Canada when it comes to owning and developing renewable electricity projects. Um, settler communities uh, across Canada have a lot to learn from indigenous communities in this regard. Like, despite everything, despite it being much harder for them systemically um, to get projects built and to, um, to own, uh, own the, the resources uh, in their territories, they, they're leaders in, in, in renewable electricity, in, in clean energy projects. And it's super important that, um, that, uh, that we continue to support that leadership so that um, no matter if it's a wind turbine or a solar panel or whatever kind of, of energy um, technology, uh, that it has the opportunity to be owned um, by, uh, by the, uh, the nation, uh, by indigenous communities. Um, and owned too by um, by co-ops, by municipalities, by like a much more community-focused, um, community-oriented way of of building out these projects. There's so much more opportunity in that when we're talking about wind and solar than when we're talking about these big, bulky projects like like nuclear or or the fossil fuel projects that we see. It's it's <laughs> you don't see a lot of like community-owned mega coal plants, right? Uh, it's <laughs> right. it's community-owned indigenous-owned renewables that have so many um, opportunities to bring these benefits. Right. It is just like you said, like a, there would never be like a community coal plant because the coal plant would be poisoning the community. So can can you speak to it a little bit about like what is environmental racism and like how has it kind of manifested in forms with uh, the fossil fuel industry? And like it's inherent in in the exploitation of like industrial capitalism and ex- and like extraction. Um, they're always 
it's it's necessary when you have that scale of impact to exploit someone and uh and it's terrible it uh historically here in canada but really really around the world um those impacts have been disproportionately borne by by uh, black and brown bodies and by indigenous communities um so lots of amazing research being done on this this uh topic of environmental racism by folks like ingrid waldron here in canada now at the university of waterloo um, but was able to do some some work with ingrid um in uh, in nova scotia um, where they they map out uh just how disproportionate those impacts are when you have a uh even things like uh like a dump and a waste facility that's leaching into the community when you have a uh, coal plant that is throwing ash and toxic uh, fumes over a community. The community that's next to those things um, far, far too often is is an indigenous community or a community of color in Canada. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of like the, the concept of like out of sight, out of mind to the people who are creating the project. So they put it out of sight, out of mind to their communities, but then that's also somebody else's home. And I think what you're talking about, like decolonizing it and bringing in like indigenous voices and, 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 and multiple forms of like ownership and engagement in these projects, like really opens up the the room, I guess, per se, to like all the stakeholders involved so that everybody can have a say in what happens where and how it impacts everybody's community. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this, it's, um, I'm flipping back and forth a little bit between like environmental racism and, and community impacts and like what I think is a pretty specific conversation around decolonization and indigenous rights and title and and energy sovereignty for indigenous communities. Um, because, uh, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, UNDRIP, and this concept of free prior and informed consent, FPIC, um, is, is, uh, has been trampled like uh, uh, that's the history in Canada um, is that treaty rights are not respected is is inherent uh, uh, rights and sovereignty of indigenous communities are not respected so that too that that process of consent um, is is really really uh, crucial for any energy project and um, I'm really excited about uh, the the benefits that renewable energy brings, the benefits that like a new way of doing things can bring if done well. Um, but it's not all puppies and rainbows too. Like everything has impacts, including wind and solar. So, so there are examples in Canada where you know indigenous communities don't see the benefit for their like it's a bank owned or you know American owned large wind farm or something on their territory. And I think uh, that. Um, when when they oppose projects like that, we should support them. Um, it's an, it's uh, it really needs it's it's uh, I think I see all the all the benefits, all the opportunities with wind and solar, but it's not inherent. Like uh, you can still do wind and solar projects poorly or in ways that don't benefit communities. And this this work of of how we get there, how we build it out, is so so important. Mm-hmm. I mean, not just like the building out of like individual product projects in the land, but like thinking about the transportation element, which is going to be huge in connecting the provinces. Um, you know, like and this is a one that comes up all the time, like pipeline routes going through indigenous nations and land that they don't want the pipeline going through, or even power lines. Um, so I think like bringing in that that element of consent in like transitioning to this whole economy and revamping things is going to be really important and crucial coming forward. Completely. Do you have any like good case studies or examples of projects that are happening, like in like indigenous owned and led um, renewable projects happening? Um, 
There are lots. Um, we published a report last year uh, around the same time as the shifting power report that I talked about titled uh, Decarbonizing Electricity and Decolonizing Power, um, where uh, Dr. Dean Jacobs and uh, and the folks at Negan Burnside interviewed more than a dozen uh, indigenous clean energy leaders who've been doing this work in communities, uh, in indigenous communities around Canada for a long time. And who, who is, or what is Negan Burnside? Uh, Negan Burnside are, are a consultancy, an indigenous owned consultancy who do work on, on energy. And Dr. Dean Jacobs is a, is a clean energy leader at a Walpole Island First Nation. Um, so, uh, so we worked with them to, to do these interviews, to, to chat with these leaders across Canada. Um, so they're in the report, there are examples that they draw out from more than 200, um, indigenous owned, uh, clean energy projects, which lots of, lots of good stories and lots of challenges to, to overcome. Um, but, uh, from my context back in, in Nova Scotia, um, the 13, uh, Mi'kmaq communities in Nova Scotia, um, have, uh, themselves like, uh, Mi'kmaq owned wind projects across the province, um, which, uh, you know, have been, uh, producing revenue for, for the communities for a long time through the community feed and tariff program. And those projects, uh, when the, the 13, uh, Mi'kmaq communities, uh, built them, produce more electricity than all of those communities combined consume in a year. So already this is part of what I mean by indigenous communities being leaders in this space. Like already they are like net renewable electricity exporters um, to, to, to the rest of the province of Nova Scotia. So there's, there's lots of good, good stories to draw on. Mm -hmm. And in that report, um, the decarbonizing and decolonizing power one, um, you mentioned, or they mentioned this concept of economic reconciliation that kind of plays into that. Yeah. Totally, totally. And do you want to speak more on the idea of economic reconciliation? I think uh, others would be better to dig into the details there. You know, there's. I think it's so important that um, that uh, ENGOs like like the David Suzuki Foundation, where I work, um, like really like lift up the stories uh, that that Indigenous folks have on these topics. But I, the last thing I want to do is try and speak for a specific idea of what economic reconciliation means for a specific community because it's different. Um, but I, if I can, can try at a, at a high level, um, it's, it's trying to right those harms that we talked about where disproportionately the impacts have been borne by indigenous communities, their inherent, uh, sovereignty and treaty rights and, 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 uh, inherent rights as indigenous people, um, are not respected. Uh, they don't see the benefits when, uh, when projects are built on their territories. Um, it's changing that. It's making sure they do see the benefits. They have uh, free prior informed consent for whatever the project is. Um, it's that category of, of the conversation that we've already dug into today. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of stepping back and looking like broader level on affordability, um, like making things affordable is obviously huge. And you say like at the end, the end goal, um, you know, it's going to be much cheaper and sustainable and better for communities all all around um during the transition though like what sort of like options or solutions are there to kind of like provide subsidies or um like loans or like how like how can we support people who are already in like a state of like they're having trouble making their energy payments and then going to this like state of like un the unknown essentially like how do we create stability and a safety net for them that's such an important part of this work um broadly around energy affordability because right now in canada and around the world uh, it, folks are, are struggling to pay their energy bills more than they ever have. Energy has become more unaffordable. 
um, people that we've already talked about in this conversation are making choices like unhuman choices being forced into these positions where they're choosing to pay their energy bills or put food on the table or pay their medical bills. It's like um, not where we want to be. Um, so uh, just by using affordable energy like wind and solar, just by making sure that in the new energy system, the cost of energy stays stable, stays as low as it can is important. Like that's like a first step that matters to everyone, but that won't solve the problem that we have today for energy poverty or the specific challenges that specific communities have um, to feel secure in, in like getting uh, reliable access to the energy that you need for their everyday. So uh, we released a, another report last year called Keeping the Lights On, which digs into these topics of energy affordability, energy justice, and, and solutions for, for what's called energy poverty, um, that disproportionate burden, burden that, uh, that some communities face, um, some households face. Um, so for me, alongside all the work that we're trying to do uh, to make a clean energy system, we have to really make sure no one's left behind, make sure we show up for communities um, who are struggling in that way. So we have pretty uh, specific uh, recommendations in there for, first of all, like a strategy on energy poverty in Canada, because it's a mess. We don't know how to talk about it. We don't know how to measure it. We don't know how to, um, uh, to, to sometimes even know who needs that support. So like having a strategy on that is, is first and foremost, super, super important. But then really focused, uh, publicly funded programs and supports, things like the heat pumps that we're talking about that benefit everybody. Um, not everyone can afford one. Uh, so for the low-income folks who are already struggling in energy poverty, it's talking about making free, no-cost heat pumps and home energy upgrades available to those folks. Um, it's having uh, differentiated uh, specific energy rates, um, paying less for electricity if you're not able to actually afford that electricity. It's this suite of kind of policy recommendations that looks to recognize that energy is a right that access to energy is a life and death issue for people in Canada, and you shouldn't be denied um, a life or death uh, like service on the basis of cost. Um, so we already we already talked about what some of those impacts can look like with the heat dome here in BC, um, but that's that's tragic, and that 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 can't continue just because folks can't afford um, the energy that they need. And these are all proposed policy kind of things. Like, is there anything currently in the works or currently happening to help people make that transition? Um, there are very piecemeal, uh, very like community specific, province specific, technology specific, like little things happening here and there. We are not addressing this uh, holistically in Canada at all. Um, so that's why we think a, a national energy poverty strategy is so, so important. Right. And I guess that kind of brings me to like my broader like kind of the stuff that we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, like when the government has made these commitments, uh, like at least like said this, um, but then like there's seems to be like this huge disconnect between like what is being said and what is being done. Like, you know, we're, we're trying to transition to green economy. We're trying to transition to a better future, but at the same time we're building oil pipelines across the continent. We're building LNG export terminals right up the house sound here. Like there's, there's still all these like infrastructure for like, not just like existing fossil fuel infrastructure for right now, but like with plans to continue it for like the next 40, 50, 60 years. Um, so yeah, I guess like what, what sort of strides are being made on a policy level and like a government level, like what is actually happening right now? 
that is another area where Canada is doing bad <laughs> or like, um, yeah, there's, there's a large extent to which Canada is a petro state there where we talked at the top of this conversation about the power of the fossil fuel lobby, the power of, um, that fossil fuel industry and trying to keep itself alive is really, really at play here in Canada and really, really getting in the way. Um, so emissions continue to rise in Canada. Uh, the, the largest and fastest growing um, part of those rising carbon emissions in Canada is from the fossil fuel sector. Um, just from the mining and processing of fossil fuels in Canada is still our biggest problem uh, for, the, for the emissions that are happening here in Canada. And then we're exporting um, like untold numbers of, uh, of, of oil, gas, and coal um, here in Canada. We are a part of the problem still um, uh, on the whole when it comes to, to moving away from fossil fuels. So the thing I'll say off the top is like, what are we doing in Canada? Like sorely not enough uh, when it comes to to really moving away um, from from the fossil fuel economy toward the clean electricity economy. Um, for the specific like policy that, that I'm working on right now and that we're talking about, um, the what we're looking to get into is something called the clean electricity regulations. And when we talk about this target for how Canada can get to 100% zero emissions electricity by 2035, that clean electricity regulation is is the main like policy tool that that is being developed to do that um and along with all the benefits that we're talking about today for how um how folks can really see the benefits when we get there um the fossil fuel lobby is really getting in the way of of that policy in a similar way that they get in the way for really every climate policy in canada um, they have more lobbyists they have more time they have more money for advertisements um, they really, uh, they really grind at finding all of the little holes in policies like this, and um, and and exploiting them and making sure that extensions, exemptions, loopholes um, are present in the laws that we pass here in Canada, the regulations that we pass here in Canada, so that fossil fuels can continue, so that um, we can can. Uh, you know, we're, we're just delayed in, in what I think is inevitable in, in this transition to, to clean energy. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it just seems so hypocritical. Like we're saying and doing all these things on face value to make <clears throat> the society in, within Canada to some extent um, less reliant on fossil fuels. But then, you know, like the overseas market for fossil fuels is still huge. I know like one of the um, kind of excuses i hear oftentimes is that like other countries can't transition to clean energy as as quickly and it's like they're going to still be burning fossil fuels for the next 10 years and if if it's not canada supplying it it's somebody else so we might as well take advantage of that um yeah like is there anything you want to speak about like on that yeah i think when we talk about like <laughs> uh fossil fuel export projects like lng here in bc uh, but we export a lot of of oil and coal in canada too um, that makes the most sense if you're the person selling it. <laughs> that makes it benefits you the most if you're the company that owns, uh, you know, the fossil fuels that you're selling. Um, I think it's so disingenuous to talk about like these these poor folks in other countries who so badly need our natural gas. Um, uh, all of the benefits that I just talked about here for the Canadian context 
about uh, low-cost, clean, healthy, uh, renewable electricity that comes with all the jobs uh, and security benefits. That's true in Canada, and that's true everywhere too. Um, uh, I, I I want for for other uh, countries, other communities, what I want for Canada in really seeing those benefits of renewable electricity. And I want for the world to decidedly move away from fossil fuels uh, and to take this climate crisis seriously. Um, and continuing to export fossil fuels for 20, 30, 40, 50 years as we're planning here in Canada is just not the path to do that. Um, so so I've got no time for, um, for those sorts of uh, um, PR arguments that you hear from the fossil fuel industry about them saving the world somehow by by exporting fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just seems like such a double standard. It's like, how can you can't be a climate leader and still be exporting the stuff, especially when like the whole purpose for making this transition is for the greater global good. You can't continue to just kind of do things the status quo because there's demand for it. Like we have a responsibility as like, you know, the second largest land scale country in the world. Um, with a lot of a lot of resources like we have uh um <clears throat> what's the word we have like a responsibility i guess to the future to just like not do it and know that we can do better especially like exporting lng like you said like are already associated with so many negative health effects it's like so you're just putting those off onto other people poor poor people like that is environmental racism in itself like yeah it's complicated but 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 Stories like that play out all over. Um, yeah. Yeah. Coming back to it. Not a fan. Not a fan of the fossil fuel industry or the lobby or, or the power that it tries to wield here in Canada. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think for myself and a lot of people out there, there's this sort of like power of like hopelessness that comes up at times when you see that happening. Um, what would you say to people? Like what, what can people do to get involved and, and stay optimistic about this and really like continue to fight to make change here? That's why I really love this solutions work um, that, you know, I've talked about so much here already in this conversation with, with renewables is, um, again, like we may have these, these old ideas of, of it somehow not being technically possible, of it somehow being too far out there or too pie in the sky, um, that we can actually build uh, an economy and a society that we deserve. Um, and that's just not true anymore. That's what I love about this solutions work is learning from communities um, and and working with these sorts of policy pathways and solutions because it's possible. Because like having a more affordable, more secure, clean energy system is possible. And it's worth fighting for it. It's worth bringing all these benefits. So the the work of, of saying no to, to projects and to to pathways that are a bad idea is so so important um, but I'd love to balance that with um, with the solutions work and saying yes um, to to something that on the whole is I think really beneficial um, but you can kind of um, make work in a culturally appropriate way or, or a context that's that makes the most sense for you and your community. I don't know if it's wind turbines or solar panels or a certain kind of building upgrade or whatever. Like we have the tools, um, the the fun part sometimes and the part that gives me hope is is making that really relevant in communities and, and working toward a solution. Mm -hmm. are, are there any current campaigns that David Suzuki Foundation is working on or anywhere where people can like any situations they can call their MLA, sign a petition, sign a letter, anything like that where they can work to influence policy? 
Yeah, we do a lot of that work. That's that's m most of the way that we're probably going to be showing up in the next year um, in how we push for 100% uh, for clean electricity by 2035. Um, so we have a petition up on our website. We have letter writing campaigns, calling our MPs, meeting with MPs, supporting people across Canada to uh, to kind of interface directly um, with, uh, with elected officials on this. Um, because as I mentioned, as, as good as this policy is, or as uh, beneficial as I see this pathway to 100% renewables is, um, it's in trouble. Um, this landscape where the fossil fuel lobby is, is so, so powerful and so active means that um, even, even policies that make sense on this scale and even policies that bring this, this level of benefits um, are, uh, are at risk uh, for, for um, being laden with these loopholes and extensions and all these things that can really make it pretty meaningless, can really just mean that we have a bunch of fossil fuels and we slap on some carbon capture and call it a day. Um, that's not the future that I think we deserve. Um, uh, so uh, you can check us out at uh, davidsuzuki.org on our website, uh, across our social platforms. Uh, you'll um, uh, doing a further search for clean energy, clean electricity, will take you to all those all those different ways to get involved. And I'll also throw links in the show notes to all the reports that you mentioned because those are really great, fascinating reads for people who are interested in learning more. Um, at the beginning, or I guess before this, I mentioned to you that I'm doing donations for every podcast to the nonprofit of your choice, of guest choice. So, um, have you thought about that? Do you know who you'd like to? Yeah, support. definitely. Um, so for me, it'd be the the Mi'kmaq grassroots grandmothers, um, uh, as the name implies, a, a group of grassroots um, uh, grandmothers in Nova Scotia, uh, in Mi'kma'ki, who have done such incredible work uh, leading these conversations on climate justice, leading these conversations on uh, decolonization. Uh, for me personally, like... Um, you know, I grew up in the 90s. I didn't get a treaty education. I learned about, you know, residential schools and and the enormous uh, impacts of colonization on this land, um, not from school, <laughs> but from the patience of women like this, but from the patience of and leadership and knowledge of uh, leaders and communities exactly like like these women. Um so, uh, so they led this um, this amazing uh, resistance to a fossil fuel project in Nova Scotia called Alton Gas, and uh, it was so much more than just uh, than just saying no to a project that shouldn't happen and and didn't happen. They were very successful in that campaign, um, but that was like this beautiful, beautiful. Uh, um, uh, like opportunity for for settlers and indigenous folks to come together in the spirit of the peace and friendship treaties that were were signed on that territory. Um, so I just can't say enough about um, the the leadership and the work of those women. Um, so so any opportunity to to throw support uh, their way is is uh, is well taken. Amazing. I'll throw a link in there as well so people can learn about that program, especially for those out east. Yeah, definitely. Um, any other final thoughts or conclusions? Anything you'd like to wrap up with? I think we covered it. I really mean it. It's so, it's such a gift to like take our time in a conversation mm -hmm. like this and make it a little bit more human. Um, it's so much more than just the technologies. It's it's this this has a human scale. It's really worth fighting for. So I'm just really grateful to to be a part of that conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you coming here and taking the time to share all this like great information. Plus, car uh, plus. Thanks so much. Car
Oof. There's a lot going on, but change is happening whether or not we want it to, so we may as well get a move on and start changing for the better. I'll throw a couple links into the show notes here to the different reports that Stephen and I were discussing, as well as a link to the current petition that the David Suzuki Foundation is putting together for residents of Canada to push this transition forward. All great resources there with tons of information, so be sure to check that out. I'll also throw a link into the Mi'kmaq Grassroots Grandmothers Organization, whom I've made a donation to on behalf of Stephen here, so you can all learn more about all the great work they're doing out on the East Coast. These donations to nonprofits of my guest choice is made possible thanks to all my wonderful Patreon supporters out there who are also solely responsible for supporting this entire Nerdy About Nature project from these podcasts that you're listening to or watching to the videos on YouTube and all over Instagram and TikTok. So if you're enjoying any of that and would like to support future episodes, you can join the Patreon family at patreon.com slash nerdyaboutnature. All of that money goes towards giving me the stability to continue creating all this fun educational content that you're enjoying so much. And the more support I have, then the more time and energy I'm able to put into it to make it better and better. And ideally, getting to a point when I can actually hire a team of people to help with research, writing, editing, and all the various pieces that goes into making this project what it is. If Patreon isn't for you, then no worries at all. You can show your support by making a one-time donation or by getting some merch at nerdyaboutnature.com or by sharing this podcast and those videos around, liking, commenting, doing all that you can to spread this info to more people to keep working for a better future tomorrow. Thank you so much for joining me today, and I hope today's conversation gave you just a little bit more info, insight, and motivation to keep working for that change that we all need to make tomorrow a better place. Now get outside and enjoy this world that we all share, because it sure is pretty neat out there. Let's keep it that way. I'll catch you next time. <laughs>